1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 226. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What we've got coming up today, we have... It'll plug by myself before everything else to tell you what something, I've got something planned. Then we have the main fiction straight in with the main fiction, which is the Clockwork Atom Bomb by Dominic Green. Then we have a new fact article series coming by Adam Pratch. It's called Cheapskates, and actually it's a nice little idea. This Adam's getting himself a Kindle, and his intention is to, if you know, if you don't want to kind of spend money on books or anything like that. He's going to deliver this little fact article, What what's good out there, for free. So he's basically Amazon's hated enemy now because he's not buying anything. So listen out to that and tell us if you like it as well. So fantastic. Before we get into the main show, little heads up. There is a new webinar out. We completed... The other week, or the other day, Amy H. Sturgis did her science fiction with Sherlock Holmes. What a great event. You know, if everyone who was there enjoyed it, thank you so much for kind of signing up for that. That was fantastic. I know both Amy and myself had a blast and the emails I've been getting back off people, you know, thanking it up. I'm chuffed to bits with that. That will be coming up in the shop later, you know, soon when we can, when I upload it and get it all sorted out. There is a new one. Star Wars music extravaganza. David Rakeley, we're going to do a little one with David. We had such great response from that Star Wars. Remember, David did the first kind of musical, the movie soundtracks. David kind of delved in a little bit of the Star Wars. Well, we're going to do that on a kind of a big. Oh, we, you know what I mean? We. David's going to do that on a bigger scale talk about Star Wars and, you know, the return of the Jedi and music and everything, you know, about John Williams, the composer as well. So I've got that on the front of the website. If anyone who comes up and wants to participate in that, come over, that would be fantastic. We'd love to see you there. It is booked for, I think it's the 24th of March. So it's actually not that long for that one. So, you know, if, you, if you'd like to come over, that would be fantastic. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are £20 for that, the same as Amy's. Don't be shy. I'll try and get David to give a little, you know, talk about it as well, what his intentions are with the show. Do you know what I mean? I'll try and get that for next week. So, first up then. We're going to jump straight into the main fiction, and it's by Dominic Green. I'll give you a little heads up with Dominic Green. 1967. He's yeah, just a young pup. You're, you're younger than me. A British writer of short science fiction. This is Wikipedia. His short story, The Atom Bomb, uh, The Clockwork Atom Bomb, which we are playing now, was nominated for a 2005 Hugo Award. Green is best known for his stories published in Inner Zone in the 90s and the noughties many of which have been reprinted in various best of anthologies. In his own published a special issue devoted to Green and his stories in July 2009. Green's lived much of his life in Northampton. He graduated from English at St. Catherine's College, Cambridge and works for information technology. He's married to his wife, Alison, who is a painter and teaches Kung Fu. In 2010, Fingerpress brought Green's first published novel, Small World. In 2011, he e-published a children's science fiction novel, Sorcerers and Gondolas, first of a series set in and around the fictional United States of the Zodiac, a secret set of colonies in space involved in the struggle for independence from British and America. There you go. This story is narrated by Matthew Stevens. Matthew, now... Actually, this, Matthew, this bio is a little bit kind of old there now. Matthew's certainly not 46. He's a little bit older, sir. He is a hospice chaplain and part-time musician, currently playing in a trio singing standards. He lives in Houston, Texas with his wife Becky of 16 years now, and that's a little bit longer as well, sir. Matthew also enjoys studying foreign languages and taking in the occasional zombie movie. Ah, ah, not a chance for me. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present The Clockwork Atom Bomb by Dominic Green. Over here, mister, this is the place.
2: The girl tugged Mati V's sleeve and led him down a street that was mostly poorly patched shell holes, delayed action munitions, the size of thumbnails and able to turn a man into fragments of the same dimensions, littered the ground hereabouts, designed to lie dormant for generations. Construction companies used robot tractors to fill in bomb damage, and the robots did a poor job. Granted, they were getting better. Robocongo was one of Equatorial Africa's biggest exporters. But usually, the whites and the blacks with cash sat in control rooms a kilometer away, directing robots to build the houses of the poor. And the poor then had to live in those houses, not knowing whether... If they put their foot down hard on a tough domestic issue, they might also be putting it down on a -A D.A.M. bomblet a meter beneath their foundations. This street, though, hadn't even been repaired. It was all sloped concrete, blast rubble and wrecked signs telling outsiders to keep out this government building, field clerical stores, important government work here, you go back. Come on, mister said the Faisu, You will see, and then you will have no problem paying. You stand still, commanded Mativi suddenly. Stand right there. Nervously, he reached into a pocket and brought out the noli Temer. It only worked fifty percent of the time, based on information gathered from scientist collaborators from all factions of the war, but fifty percent was better than Zip. He turned the device on, on low power in case any of the more recent devices that smelled mine detector power-up were present and swept it left and right. Nothing. He flicked it up to full power and swept again. A small stray, air-dropped, anti-personnel device at the northwest end of the street, but otherwise nothing. "'You see that house over there, Emily?' he said, pointing across the road." The girl nodded. Well, you're not to go in there. There is an explosive device in there, a big one. It'll kill you. Emily shook her head firmly. It isn't nearly as big as the one that took Claude. Mativi nodded. But you say the device is still there. Has been since I was very little. Everyone knows it's there. The grown-ups know it's there. They used it when the slim hit to get rid of the bodies, so we wouldn't get sick sometimes, she said, before the bodies were entirely dead. You can't get slim from a dead body, said Mativi. That's what you say, said Emily, and he knew she was right. So many generously altered genomes had been flying around Africa and warheads 15 years ago that someone could have altered HIV and turned it into an airborne rather than bloodborne virus, like the rickettsial hemorrhagic fever that had wiped out all of Johannesburg's blood banks in a single day and made social pariahs of blacks all over Europe and America overnight. The sun dropped below the horizon like a guillotine blade, and it was suddenly night, as if someone had flicked a switch in heaven. Mativi had gotten too used to life off the equator, had been working on the basis that night would steal up slowly as it had in Quebec and Patagonia, but the busy equatorial night had no time for twilight. He hadn't brought night vision goggles. Had he brought a torch? As they walked up the street, a wind gathered, as if the landscape sensed his unease. You have to be careful, said the girl. Tread only where I tread. And you have to bend down, she nodded at Mativi's Kinshasa Rolex. You have to leave your watch outside. Why, so one of your Bashek boyfriends can steal it while I'm in there? To satisfy the girl's insistence, he slid the watch off his wrist and set it on a brick, but picked it up again when she wasn't looking and dropped it into his pocket. "'Where are we going?' he said. "'In there,' she pointed. Half buried in the rubble was a concrete lintel, one end of a substantial buried structure through which the wind was whistling. "'No, correction.' out of which the wind was whistling. She slipped under the lintel, on which was fixed a sign saying, Warning, extreme personal danger. The room beyond had once had skylights. Now it had ruined holes in the roof into which the geostationary Unpaforkong security moon poured prisms of reflected sunlight. 35,900 kilometers above Mativi's head, He and five million other Kinshasans were being watched with 5,000 cameras. This had at first seemed an outrageous intrusion on his privacy until he realized that he'd have to commit a thousand murders before any of the cameras was likely to catch him in the act. Don't step any closer, the girl said. It will take you. The entrance had promised an interior like any other minor military strongpoint, only just large enough to contain a couple of hammocks and a machine gun, maybe. But inside, after only a few steps down, the room was huge, the size of a factory floor. They had entered via an engineer's inspection catwalk close to the roof. He was not sure how far down the floor was. The wind was deafening. The girl had to shout. There's more than one of them in here. They live in the machines. The government made the machines, but not with technicians and electricians. With sorcery. The machines did not look made by sorcery. They were entirely silent, looking like rows of gigantic rusted steel chess pawns twice the height of a man, with no pipes or wires entering or leaving them. Apparently, sitting here unused for any purpose. Mativi felt an urgent, entirely rational need to be in another line of employment. Have you any idea what the machines were built for? said Mativi, who had. The girl nodded. The demons are in the machines, she said. The machines were built as cages. The military men who made this place warned all the most important men in our district of this, they warned my father. They told him never to break any of the machines open, but over time they leak and the demons can get out. The first two machines are safe for now, but you must be careful because we thought the third one was safe too, and it took Claude. What did it do when it took him, said Matibi? He could not see any damage to the walls around the third machine beyond perhaps a certain clean-swept quality of the dust on the floor around it. It took him, the girl said. It made him small. It sucked him up. The machines, said Mativi in broken lingala, they are covered with, with things. The heads of the chess pawns, under the light of Mativi's torch, were surrealistically coiffured with assorted objects. Spanners, wire, door furniture, and worryingly a single fragmentation grenade. Many, Perhaps more than half of the things were ferrous metal, but some looked like aluminum. Some were even bits of wood or plastic. Not just magnetism, then. He fished the fake Rolex out of his pocket, waved it in the direction of the machines, and felt a strong tug on it as he held it in his hand. But he also felt a strong tug on the sleeve of his shirt and on his arm itself. He realized with growing unease that the wind was not blowing out of the chamber, but into it, pushing him from behind. It also appeared to be blowing in through the skylights in the roof above. It did not seem to be blowing out anywhere. The girl gasped. You should not have done that. Now your watch will not keep good time. Is that how the machines sucked Claude up? No, all the machines draw things in. But you can pull yourself loose from most of them. But the ones that demons live in will suck you right into where the demon lives and not leave a hair behind. Hold people? People? Metal? Anything? Stones? Mativi picked up a fragment of loose plaster from the floor. Yes, but you shouldn't throw things. He threw it. The girl winced. He saw the plaster travel halfway across the floor until it passed the second machine, then it jerked sideways in midair, as if attached to invisible strings, puffed into a long cone of powder, and vanished. The girl was angry. You must do what I say. The military men said we should not throw things into the bad machines. They said it made the demons stronger. Yes, said Mativi, and they were absolutely right. Not much stronger, but if enough people threw in enough uncharged material over enough time, I don't understand what you mean by uncharged material. Do you understand what I mean by everyone would die? The girl nodded. We should not stay too long in here. People who stay too long in here get sick. The demons make them sick. Mativi nodded. And I suppose this sickness takes the form of hair loss, shortness of breath, extreme paleness of the skin. Yes, said the girl. The victims display the classic symptoms of radiation alopecia and stem cell death. Well, I'll be damned. After all, she has lived through a nuclear war. She's been living among radiation victims her entire life, probably taught herself to read using Red Cross posters. Well, the same demons that were used in the radiation bombs are in here. Slightly different, because these are a slightly different weapon, but the same demons. The girl nodded. But these are not radiation bombs, she said. This means you have to pay me double, she held out her hand. Mativi nodded. This means I have to pay you double. He fished in his wallet for a fistful of United Nations script. After all, why shouldn't I pay you? None of this money is going to be worth anything if these things destroy the world tomorrow. I'm telling you there are at least 40 of them. I counted them. Five rows of eight. I didn't go to the hotel because I didn't want to call you in the clear. We have to be the only people who know about this. Because if anyone wanders into that site, anyone at all, and does anything they shouldn't, we will all die. I'm not saying they, I'm saying we, and I'm not saying might die, I'm saying will die. Yes, this is a heavy weapons alert. No, I can't tell you what that means. All I can tell you is that we must comply with the alert to the letter if you're interested in handing on the planet to your children. Your children will grow out of that, that hating their father thing. All teenagers go through that phase. And credit where credit's due, you really shouldn't have slept with their mother's sister in the first place. No, I don't want an inspection team. I want troops, armed troops, with a mandate to shoot to kill, not a detachment of graduates in peace studies from Liechtenstein in a white APC. And when I put the phone down on you, I want to know that you're going to be picking up your phone again and dialing the IAEA. I am serious about this, Louis. All right, all right. I'll see you at the site tomorrow. When he laid the handset down, he was trembling. In a day when there were over a hundred permanent websites on the Antarctic ice shelf, It had taken him five hours to find a digital phone line in a city of 5 million people, which, to be fair, 15 years ago had been a city of 10 million people. Of course, his search for a phone line compatible with his encryption software would probably be for nothing. If there were this few digital lines in the city, there was probably a retro tech transistor microphone planted somewhere in the booth he was sitting in, feeding data back to a mainframe at police headquarters. But at least this meant the police would be the only ones who knew. If he'd gone through the Baroque network of emergency analog lines, every housewife in the Cité would have known by morning. He got up from the booth, walked to the desk, and paid the geek, the geek with a submachine gun, who was manning it. There was no secret police car waiting outside, The car would have been unmarked but extremely obvious due to the fact that no one but the government could afford to travel around in cars. The Congolese sun came up like a jack-in-the-box, and it was a short walk through the zero-tolerance district back to his hotel, which had once been a Hilton. He fell into the mattress, which bludgeoned him compliantly unconscious. When he opened his hotel room door in the morning to go to the one functioning bathroom, a man was standing outside with a gun. Neither the gun nor the man were particularly impressive, the gun because it appeared to be a pre-war cased ammunition model that hadn't been cleaned since the armistice. And the man, because his hand was shaking like a masturbator's just before orgasm, and because Mativi knew him to be a paterfamilias with three kids in kindergarten and a passion for engage model railroads. However, the gun still fired big, horrid bullets and made holes in stuff, and it was pointing at Mativi. I'm sorry, Chet, I can't let you do it. The safety catch, Mativi noted, was off. Do what? said Mativi. You're taking away my livelihood. You know you are. I'm sorry, Jean. I don't understand any of this. Maybe you should explain a little more. Jean-Baptiste Ngoyi, an unremarkable functionary of the United Nations Temporary Administration Service, former People's Democratic Republic of Congo, appeared to have put on his best work clothes to murder Mativi. The blue Untas Ford dimrekong logo was embroidered smartly and widely on his chest pocket. I can't let you take them away. There were actually tears in the little man's eyes. Take what away? You know what? Everyone knows. They heard you talking to Grosjean. Mativi's eyes popped. No. Oh, shit. No. He leaned back against crumbling postmodern plasterwork. Jean, don't take this personally, but if someone as far down the food chain as you knows, everyone in the city with an email address and a heartbeat knows. He looked up at Ngoyi. There was a microphone in the comms booth, right? No. The geek who mans the desk is President Lisoba's police chief's half-brother. The police are full of Lisoba men who were exonerated by the general amnesty after the armistice. Shit. Shit. What are they doing? Now they know. Emergency measures are being put in place to contain the problem. That's all they'd say. Oh, and there are already orders out for your arrest, for your own safety. They didn't know which hotel you were staying in. One of them was trying to find out when he rang me. Montevie walked in aimless circles, holding his head to stop his thoughts from wondering, I'll bet he was God. God and you and you didn't tell him where I was. Does that mean you're not um particularly serious about killing me? He stared at Ngoyi ingratiatingly, but the gun didn't waver, at least not any more than it had been wavering already. Never mind, it had been worth a try. It means I couldn't take the chance that they really did want you arrested for your own safety, said Ngoyi. If a U.N. weapons inspector died in Kinshasa, that would throw the hand grenade well and truly in the muck spreader for the police chiefs, after all. I take it some of them are men who originally installed the containers. If so, they know very well full amnesties are available for war crimes. Ngoi shook his head. Not for crimes committed after the war. Mativi was alarmed. After? They've been using the machines as execution devices, said Ngoyi. No mass, no body, no incriminating evidence. And they work too. The Basheks are terrified of them. will do anything to avoid being killed that way. They think they're the homes of demons. They're not far wrong, muttered Mativi. And then there are the undertakers, continued Ngoyi. They've been using the machines for mass burials. Otherwise, the bodies would have just piled up in the streets in the epidemics. And the domestic waste trucks, about five of them, stop there several times a week and dump stuff in through the skylights. And my own trucks? Your own trucks? Yes, three times a week, sometimes four, Ngoi returned Mativi's accusing stare. Oh, sure, the UN gives us Geiger counters and that bacterial foam that fixes fallout and the special vehicles for sucking up the fixed material and casting it into lead bricks which you're supposed to then arrange for disposal by the IAEA by burial underground in the Devil's Brickyard in the dry valleys of Antarctica, finished Matibi. Only you haven't been doing that, have you? You thought you'd cut a few corners. The UN gives us a budget of only five million a year, complained Engoyi. And by the time that reaches us, it has, by the magic of African mathematics, become half a million. Have you any idea what it costs to ship a single kilo of hazardous waste to Antarctica? That's what you're supposed to do, repeated Mativi, staring up the barrel of the gun, which somehow didn't matter quite so much now. We were talking about astrophysics in the Bar Bidal only the other night. You told me then that once something crosses the event horizon, it never comes out, said the civil servant, mortified. You promised. That's absolutely correct, said Mottivy. Absolutely, totally, and utterly correct. Then, said Ungui, his face brightening insanely, then there is no problem. We can throw in as much stuff as we want to. Each one of those containers, said Matibi, is designed to hold a magnetically charged object that weighs more than ten battleships. Hence the reinforced concrete floor. Hence the magnetized metal casing that attracts every bit of ferrous metal in the room. Now what do you think is going to happen if you keep piling in extra uncharged mass? Nothing that crosses the event horizon comes out, Jean. Nothing. Ever including you, including me, including Makimba and Kimberetta, and little Laurent. Ngoyi's face fell. Then momentarily it rose again. But our stuff is only a few hundred kilos a week, he began, much less than what the domestic waste people put in. I feel better already. You're not going to be personally responsible for getting the whole planet sucked into oblivion. It's going to be some other guy. The sewage outlet, mind you, continued Mativi. That must be pumping in a good thousand liters a day. Mativi's jaw dropped. Sewage outlet? Sure, the sanitation guys rerouted the main waste pipe for the city as a temporary measure. They have to keep replacing the last few meters. The machine keeps eating the pipe, Ngoi shrugged. How else do you think they keep five million people's shit out of the drinking water? Jean-Baptiste, you have to stop this. You have to stop it now. You have absolutely no idea what you're doing. The gun was still pointing at the center of Mativi's chest. Now, just for a moment, it stopped wavering and hit dead center. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm making sure I can feed my wife and children. The finger coiled round the trigger slowed down as if falling down gravity slopes. Mativi winced. The gun clunked and did nothing. Ngoi stared at his uncooperative weapon tearfully. I must warn you, lied Mativi, that I led my university karate team. You should leave, said Ngoyi. I think I recognized the municipal sanitation inspector's car following the bus I took down here. He had a rocket-propelled grenade launcher on his parcel shelf. The road surface rose and fell under the Hyundai like a brown ocean swell, testing its suspension to the limit. Mativi heard things grinding that probably ought not to. Can I drop you off anywhere? He braked gently as the traffic hit the blast craters around the freeway-railway junction, which had been a prime military target. Robot repair units were still working on it, and their operators did not pay much attention to cars that weighed one-tenth what a mine-clearance tractor did. The streetlights seemed to be out on this stretch of road, and the only illumination came from car headlights bouncing up and down like disco strobes. The robot tractors did not need visible light to see. The stadium will do fine. I can catch a bus out to N'Jili from there. You live that far out of town? We don't all live on Geneva salaries, you know. Ngoi's face blanched suddenly as he stared into the evening traffic. Stop the car. Handbrake turn. Handbrake turn. Mativi stared into the traffic. Why? Four secret police cars dead ahead. It was true, and Mativi cursed himself for not having seen it. The SUVs stood out like aluminum islands in the sea of polyurea africars. Each one of them would have cost ten times an ordinary Kinshasa's annual salary. It's not a roadblock, said Mativi. So I should care? They're out looking for you. Looks like an escort. They're not even coming down this road. They're turning onto the freeway to Jelobinza. They're escorting that big, heavy launch tractor, one of the ones designed to carry clutches of heavy ballistic missiles, out to the pads at Malebo. He peered out of the driver's side window, the one whose suspension is scraping the ground. He did a handbrake turn and left the road in the direction of Jelobinza. The suspension hardly noticed the difference. The only reason people drove on roads anymore in Kinshasa was because the road was slightly more likely to have been checked for explosives. There was only desolatory hooting when he rejoined the road, leaving the road and rejoining it after a four-wheel drive shortcut was common. The 4x4s were clearly visible now, crammed with whatever men the police chiefs had been able to get their hands on at short notice, some in military uniform, some in T-shirts, some with government-issue sidearms, some with war-era AKMs, yawning, pulled out of bed in the early hours. The crawler was taking up three lanes of traffic, drawing a horde of honking AfriCars behind it like a bridle train. Despite the horns, the crawler was probably not moving much slower than the cars would have done. The expressway was still a mass of blast craters. I can't believe this, said Mativi, hugely affronted. How can they think they can haul a million-ton object across town without me noticing? Engoyi stared. You think that thing's got things on it? Mativi nodded. One of the things is on board, one of the containers. They're taking it across town because they can't bear to lose it. I wonder why. He winked at Engoyi. Maybe they're in the pay of the Office of Sanitation. The car plunged into yet another black void, unilluminated by its headlights. Jesus, I wish those streetlights were working. He blinked as the car bonnet surged up again into the light. Then he realized, not only were there no streetlights, there were also no lights in the city around the road. That's it, isn't it? What? What? They're going to the power company. You dumb fucks have been plugging power into it as well, haven't you? Ngoi hesitated, then gave up the game and nodded. It started out as a theoretical weapons project in the last days of the war, but, he insisted defiantly, it was a peaceful use we put it to. One of our junior officers, a very clever young man, a Ph.D. from Caltech, suggested that if we aimed an infrared laser beam at the event horizon at a certain angle, it would come out as a gamma ray beam which we used to heat a tank of mercury. We tried water first, but it flash evaporated and fused the rock around the tank to glass. He licked his lips nervously. The hardest part was designing a turbine system that would work with evaporating mercury. We lost a lot of good men to heavy metal poisoning. Realization dawned on Mativi. You were one of the researchers in Lisuba's government. You think I could have got away with living in the old people's democratic republic with a physics degree without being a weapons researcher? Goy laughed hollowly. Dream on, brother. But this is peacetime now. The technology is being used to power the houses of 5 million people. Uh Uh-huh. There's no sidestepping the laws of thermodynamics. You only get out less than what you put in. You're only getting power out because you're sapping the angular momentum of what's inside the container. I'll lay a bet that what's inside the container was created illegally... Using the Lubumba Collider that President Lisoba convinced the UN to build to rejuvenate the Congolese economy. Ngoy squirmed. He also said, scientify the Congolese economy. He actually used the word scientify. Mativi nodded. In any case, that angular momentum was put into the container by gigawatts of energy pumped into the collider from the city power grid. Effectively, all you're doing is using up energy someone stole and stored 15 years ago. It's no more a power source than a clockwork doll is, Jean-Baptiste. You have to wind it up to watch it go, and all you'll be left with, in the end, is a non-rotating, very heavy lump of extremely bad shit. Well, I must admit, admitted Ruefully. The amount of juice we can squeeze out of it is getting smaller every year. The tractor in front suddenly rumbled to a halt in a cloud of dust big enough to conceal a herd of rhinos. A wall of immobile metal barred the carriageway and three lanes of drivers performed the peculiarly Congolese maneuver of stepping on their brakes and leaning on their horns simultaneously. One of them shrieked suddenly in dismay, when a length of caterpillar track resembling a chain of house facades clipped together with traffic bollards slammed down onto his bonnet and crushed it flat before slapping his saloon into a cabriolet. Paint flakes flew everywhere. The car was a steel one too, an old proton model produced under license in Afghanistan. Mativi hoped the driver had survived. Troopers poured out of the 4x4s, ignoring the barrage of horns. They were staring at the side of the tractor. Some good Catholics were even crossing themselves. Mativi put the handbrake on and left his car. Someone hooted at him. He ignored them. One whole side of the tractor had collapsed into the asphalt. The torsion bars on the vehicle's suspension, each one a man's waist thick and made of substances far, far stronger than steel, had snapped like seaside rock. The load on top of the tractor had slumped sideways underneath its canvas blanket. Now that he was outside the car, he was aware of a hissing sound. The sound was coming from a hole punched in the canvas cover. Some of the troopers were walking up towards the load. Mativi danced out onto the grass verge, waving his arms like an isangoma. No, no, get away, très dangereux. One of the men looked at Mativi as if he were an idiot and took another step forward. His sleeve began to rustle and flap in the direction of the hole in the canvas. Then his hand slapped down onto the canvas cover and he began to scream, beating on his hand, trying to free it. His comrades began to laugh, looking back towards Mativi, enjoying the joke their friend was having at the crazy man's expense. Then he vanished. Not quite vanished. Mativi and the troops both heard the bones in his hand snap, saw the hand crumple into the canvas like a handkerchief into a magician's glove, followed by his arm, followed by his shoulder, followed by his head. They saw the flare of crimson his body turned into as skin, bone, blood vessels, all the frail materials meant to hold a body together "'degenerated into carmine mulch "'and were sucked up by the structure. "'A crimson blot of blood a man wide "'sprayed onto the canvas, "'out of which, weirdly, runnels of blood "'began trailing inward toward the hole, "'against and at angles to gravity. "'The police troops turned and looked at Mativi, "'then looked back at the tractor. "'A chef, "'One of them said to him, "'Qu'est-ce qu'on fait maintenant?' It's loose, said Ngoi, his eyes glazed, seeing the ends of worlds. It's loose, and I am responsible. Mativi shook his head. It's not loose. Not yet. We can still tell exactly where it is just by feeding it more policemen. But its casing's corroded. It's sucking in stuff from outside. Not corroded, Ngoyi shook his head. It won't corrode. It's made of nickel alloy, very strong, very heavy. It's one of the cases we bored a hole in deliberately in order to shine in the infrared beam. There'll be another hole in the casing on the far side where the gamma comes out. Mativi nodded. One of the machines the demons live in. Ungoy still seemed to be wary of even looking at the container. Could it topple over? no. If it begins to topple, it'll right itself immediately. It's probably scrunched itself down into the top of the tractor doing that already. Remember, it's a small thing rotating, rotating fast, and it weighs over a thousand tons. The gyroscopic stabilizer of an object like that doesn't bear thinking about. Set the way, Brian Mativy. I am hereby, by the order of the United Nations, peacekeeping forces of the Congo, placing you under arrest. Mativi turned. The voice had come from a senior police officer. The amount of shiny regalia on the uniform confused matters, but he was almost certain the man was a lieutenant. Mativi sighed. Lieutenant, he began. Major, corrected the major. Major... I am engaged in preventing a public disaster of proportions bigger than anything that might probably be prevented by arresting me. Do you know what will happen if that load falls off that wagon? The Major shrugged. Do you know what will happen if I see you and don't drag you down to the cells? I will lose my job and my wife and children will go hungry. Matvey began to back away. Hey! "'The Major began to pointedly unbutton his revolver. "'I know what will happen if you don't bring me in, "'and you forget to mention that there'll be no power in the city either, "'and that is a consequence of greater number of wives and children will go hungry,' said Mativi. "'Circling around the danger area, of bow-headed, permanently wind-blown grass near the tractor's payload, "'he waved his arms in the direction of the dark horizon.' "'You can see the evidence of this already. "'The device on this tractor has been uncoupled from the grid, "'and immediately there is no power for refrigeration, "'no power for cooking, or for emergency machinery in hospitals. "'I know all that.' "'Slowly he put his hands up to indicate he was no threat. "'Then with one hand he swung himself up onto the side of the tractor "'with the payload between himself and the major.' "'But you truly cannot begin to comprehend what will happen to those wives and children "'if I allow this load to continue on to Jelobenza, sir. "'You see, I understand at a very deep level what is in this container. "'You do not. "'I must warn you not to attempt to escape custody,' said the major, raising his pistol. "'I am empowered to shoot.' "'How can I be trying to escape custody?' Mativi said." looking down the barrel of the pistol as if his life depended on it, and sinking in his stance, causing the major to lower the pistol by a couple of centimeters, still training it on his heart. "'I'm climbing on board a police vehicle.' "'Get down off that vehicle now,' said the major, "'or I will shoot.' Matvey licked his lips, looking up a pistol barrel for the second time that day, but this time attempting to perform complex orbital calculations in his head as he did so. Have I factored in relativity properly? It needs to travel dead over the hole. Shant! The gun fired. It made quite a satisfactory boom. There was a red flash in midair, and Mativi was still there. The Major stared at Mativi. As I said said Mattivi, I understand what is in this cargo. You do not. Do I have your full cooperation? The Major's eyes went even wider than his perceived remit to use deadly force. He lowered the gun, visibly shaken. You do, he said, sir, he added. The Hyundai became bogged down by bodies, fortunately living ones, in the immediate vicinity of the heavy weapons alert site. A crowd of perhaps a thousand goggling locals, all dressed in complimentary rayon T-shirts handed out by various multinationals to get free airtime on Third World famine reports, were making road and roadside indistinguishable. But the big blue bull bars parted the crowd discreetly, and Mativi dawdled forward to a hastily erected barrier of Velcro wires into which several incautious onlookers had already been pushed by their neighbors. Velcro wire barbs would sink a centimeter into flesh, then open up into barbs that could only be removed by surgeons, providing the owners of the flesh desired to keep it. Barbed wire was not truly barbed. Velcro wire was. The troops at the only gap in the fence stood aside and saluted for the UN car, and Mativi pulled up next to an ancient Boeing V-22 VTOL transport, in the crew door of which a portly black man in a bad safari suit sat juggling with mobile phones. The casings of the phones, Matibi knew, were color-coded to allow their owner to identify them. The Boeing had once been United Nations white. After too many years in the Congo, it was now well-used latrine white. Mativi examined what was being done at the far end of the containment area. The site was a mass of specialized combat engineering machinery. Mativi recognized one of the devices, a Japanese-made tractor designed for diffusing unexploded nuclear munitions, or rather for dealing with what happened when a human nuclear UXB disposal operative made a mistake. Hair-trigger sensors on the tractor would detect the incipient gamma flare of a fission reaction, then fire a 120-millimeter shell into the nuke. This would kill the bomb disposal man and fill the area around the bomb with weapons-grade fallout, but probably save a few million civilians in the immediate area. Matibi walked across the compound and yelled at the man in the Boeing, "'Louis, what the hell are your UXB monkeys doing?' Grosjean's head whipped around. Oh, hello, Chet. We're following standard procedure for dealing with an unexploded weaponized gamma source. Well, first off, this isn't a weapon. Grosjean's smile was contemptuous. It's something that can annihilate the entire planet, and it isn't a weapon? It's 39 things that can annihilate the planet, and they're not weapons anymore. Think about it. Would anyone use a weapon that would blow up the whole world? Grosjean actually appeared to seriously consider the possibility. Then he nodded to concede the point. So what sort of weapon were these things part of? Not weapons, corrected Mativi. Think of them as weapons waste. They were the principal components of a Penrose accelerator. You're making it up. You damn fool security guy, me weapons inspector. We've suspected the People's Democratic Republic of Congo used Penrose weapons in their war with the Democratic People's Republic of Congo for some time. They had guns capable of lobbing hundred-ton shells full of plague germs at Pretoria from a distance of 4,000 kilometers, for instance. When we examined those guns after Un overran their positions, what we found didn't fit. They had magnetic accelerators in their barrels, but at the sort of muzzle velocities they'd had to have been using, the magnets in their barrels would only have been any use in aiming, not in getting the payload up to speed, and the breach of each weapon had been removed. Something had been accelerating those projectiles, but it wasn't magnetism, And it wasn't gunpowder. The projectiles were big, and they were moving fast. You remember the outbreak of airborne rabies in New Zealand two years back? That was one of theirs. A Congolese shell fired too hot and went into orbit. The orbit decayed, and the shell came down, 13 years after the war. Gunpowder and magnetism don't do that. So what was it? A Penrose Accelerator. You get yourself a heavy-duty rotating mass big enough to have stuff orbit round it, and you whirl ordnance round those orbits. Contrary to the direction of the mass's rotation, half of your ordnance separates from the payload and drops into the mass. The other half gets kicked out to mind-buggering velocities. The trouble is, none of this works unless the mass is dense enough to have an escape velocity greater than light." A black hole. Yes, you have yourself thirty-nine charged rotating black holes, formerly used as artillery accelerators, now with nowhere to go. Plus, another hole lodged precariously on the back of a tractor on the public highway halfway between here and Jelobinza. And the only way for us to find enough energy to get rid of them, I imagine, would be to use another black hole to kick them into orbit. They also give off gamma almost constantly, as they're constantly absorbing matter. You point one of those UXB diffuser tractors at them and throw the safety on the gun and... Jesus! Grosjean stared at the ground floor entrance where his men had been preparing to throw heavy artillery shells at the problem jumped up and began frantically waving his arms for them to stop we we aret aret and we thought getting rid of nuclear waste was difficult looks easy to me said mativi nodding in the direction of the highway two trucks with uns Mat livery their suspensions hanging low had stopped just short of the military cordon in the eastbound lane their drivers had already erected signs saying light heat here for dollars, and were handing out clear resin bricks that glowed with a soft green light to housewives who were coming out of their darkened prefabs nearby, turning the bricks over in their hands, feeling the warmth, haggling over prices. Is that what I think it is? said Grosjean. I should stop that. It's dangerous, isn't it? Don't concern yourself with that now. Those bricks can only kill one family at a time. Besides, said Mathevi gleefully, the city needs power, and Jean-Baptiste men are only supplying a need, right? Ungoy, still in the passenger seat of the Hyundai, stared sadly as his men handed out radion nuclides and could not meet Mathevi's eyes. He reached in his inside pocket for the gun he had attempted to kill Mathevi with, and began slowly and methodically to clear the jam that had prevented him from doing so. Once you've cordoned off the area, said Mativi, we'll be handling things from that point onwards. I've contracted the IAEA myself. There's a Continental Response Team on its way. In the car, Ingoyi had, by now, worked the jam bullet free and replaced it with another one, At the Boeing, Grosjean's jaw dropped. You have teams set up to deal with this already? Of course. You don't think this is the first time this has happened, do you? It's the same story as with the A-bomb. As soon as physicists know it's possible, every ten-pot dictator in the world wants it and will do a great deal to get it and certainly isn't going to tell us he's trying. Somewhere in the world at a location I am not aware of and... Wouldn't tell you if I were. There's a stockpile of these beauties that would make your hair curl. I once spoke to a technician who had just come back from there. I think it's somewhere warm. He had a suntan. He said there were aisles of the damn things, literally thousands of them. The UN are working on methods of deactivating them. But right now, our best theoretical methods for shutting down a black hole always lead to catastrophic hawking evaporation, which would be like a thousand-ton nuclear warhead going off, and if any of these things broke out of containment, even one, it would sink through the earth's crust like a stone into water. It'd get to the earth's center and beyond before it slowed down to a stop, and then, of course, it'd begin to fall to the center again. It wouldn't rise to quite the same height on the other side of the earth, just like a pendulum swinging slower and slower and slower, gathering bits of earth into itself all the time, of course, until it eventually sank to the center of the world and set to devouring the entire planet. The whole earth would get sucked down the hole over a period which varies from weeks to centuries, depending on which astrophysicist you ask. And you know what? And here Mativi smiled evilly. This was always the good part. What, Grosjean's Bantu face, had turned whiter than a Boer's. From the direction of the car, Mativi heard a single, slightly muffled gunshot. We have no way of knowing whether we already missed one or two, whether one or two of these irresponsible nations carrying out unauthorized black hole research dropped the ball. How would we know? If someone kept their project secret enough, how would we know There wasn't a black hole bouncing up and down like a big happy rubber ball inside the earth right now. Gravitational anomalies would eventually begin to show themselves, I suppose, whether on seismometers or mass detectors. But our world might only have a few decades to live, and we wouldn't be any the wiser. Make sure that cordon's tight, Louis. Grosjean swallowed with difficulty and nodded. Matevi wandered away from the containment site. Flipping open his mobile phone, miracle of miracles, even out here, it worked. Hello, darling. No, I think it'll perhaps take another couple of days. Oh, the regular sort of thing. Not too dangerous. Yes, we did catch this one. Well, I, I did get shot at a little, but the guy missed. He was aiming on a purely Euclidean basis. Euclidean. Now, I'll explain when I get home. Okay, well, if you have to go now, then you have to go. I'll be on the 9 a.m. flight from Kinshasa. He flicked the phone shut and walked, whistling towards the Hyundai. There was a spiderweb of blood over the passenger side where Ngoyi had shot himself. Still, he thought, that's someone else's problem. This car goes back to the pool tomorrow. At least he kept the side window open when he did it. Made a lot less mess than that bastard Lamont did in Quebec City. And they made me clean that car. He looked out at the world. Saved you again, you big round bugger. And I hope you're grateful. For the first time in a week, he was smiling. <laughs>
1: There you go, forget as usual. Copyright is Dominic. I'll try and get some more of Dominic's work. It's fantastic, that. Dominic, thank you so much. A, a worthy nominee for the Hugo Award. So, next up is our new fact article by Adam Pratch. Adam, am I, am I mentioning your name, right? <laughs> Again, botching these things up. Sorry, sir. I, like you I say, Adam's little... Let Adam talk about it in his kind of fact article, but it's just... A great idea, you know, because there is, like, a multitude, you know, of all the kind of free stuff that's out there, fiction-wise. There is a lot of dross, to be quite honest. Adam's going to kind of go through there and just, you know, sift out the nice bits. Adam, sir.
0: Welcome to the Cheapskate Review. My name is Adam, and Amazon hates me. Well, maybe not me personally... But I'm exactly the kind of person who undercuts their business model. You see, I recently used a Christmas gift card to become the proud owner of one of the new Amazon Kindle ebook devices, which sent me back just $79. But according to a report from MainStreet.com, each one of these little beauties actually costs Amazon $84. The idea is that they'll quickly recoup their losses as they sell people electrons, or rather, electrons that get themselves organized into digital books. But here's where people like me wreck the model. I have yet to spend a single additional cent on content for my Kindle, yet I still have about 50 books on the device. Some are free outright, and some are on loan from the library. More on how to do that in later episodes. See, I'm a cheapskate, and that's why Amazon hates me. At least presumably. The bad thing about being a cheapskate is that when you're getting content for free, sometimes you get what you pay for. And there's so many free books out there. As author Cory Doctorow once suggested phrasing it, "Ebooks, you're soaking in them. Still, with some careful searching, there's some really quality science fiction out there for you to enjoy. And that's what the Cheapskate Review is all about. Helping Starship Sofa listeners to sort out the pearls from the dirt clods in free ebooks and free audiobooks. I hope it's useful and enjoyable, and my thanks to Tony for the opportunity to give this series a whirl. The plan is to send one to the sofa about every other month. A couple of qualifiers I should put forward here at the beginning. Number one, I only own a Kindle, so my apologies if some of the free content leans a bit Amazon heavy. Whenever possible, I will look for a free copy available in as many formats as possible. Number two, my reviews will be of content that was free as of the time I sent the podcast to Tony. Sometimes prices change without warning, so my apologies if you suddenly see a price tag. I'm going for free, but I might make the occasional exception for a 99-cent book. In the interest of keeping Amazon in the red, I'm going to limit myself to reviewing only five of these. Anyone object? Uh, Hearing none, on to number three. I'm taking advantage of free eBooks, but I'm doing this for free as well. No one is paying me for these reviews, and I'm selecting what I review at my own discretion. I'll reveal any conflicts of interest I may have, should they arise. Number four, while I'm a cheapskate, by no means do I advocate for being a miser. If you enjoy one of these free works and have the means, please support these authors in any way you can. Whenever possible, I will mention how you may do so. So, let's get to it, shall we? In keeping with Tony's recent Sherlock Holmes theme, I have chosen to review selections from The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, edited by John Joseph Adams, who I first discovered through Lightspeed Magazine. Now, as far as I can tell, there are three main reasons for why an electronic work may be provided for free. First, the author has been kind enough to write their works a long time ago, allowing it to run out of copyright and be distributed at anyone's whim. Second, the free content is intended as bait to encourage you to purchase a longer work or work in another form, such as a free audiobook to promote the ebook or physical versions. Third, the author has some sort of a philosophical basis for providing free content. The aforementioned Cory Doctorow is foremost among these. The Improbable Adventures of Sherlock Holmes is a little bit of these last two reasons, I think. It's an enticement to buy the full anthology of the Sherlock Holmes stories with a science fiction and fantasy twist, including works by the likes of Neil Gaiman, Stephen King, Michael Moorcock, and Naomi Novik. Babayan Books, a publisher, includes a sampler anthology among the more than 120 books available for download via their free library. In Eric Flint's excellent introduction to the library, he explains just why they do this. It is, he says, ultimately, for the sake of the authors. Quoting, Rather than worrying about online piracy, much less tying ourselves and society into knots trying to shackle everything, it just makes more sense from a commercial as well as a principal point of view to steal from the stealers. Don't bother robbing me, twit. I will cheerfully put up the stuff for free myself, because I am quite confident that any losses I sustain will be more than made up for by the expansion in the size of my audience. For me to worry about piracy would be like a singer in a piano bar worrying that someone might be taping the performance in order to produce a pirate recording. That assumes, of course, that the writer in question is producing good books. Good, at least, in the opinion of enough readers. That is not always true, of course, but, frankly, a mediocre writer really doesn't have to worry about piracy anyway. End quote. In the case of these Sherlock Holmes selections, we certainly have some good writers and quality short stories. In addition to a brief primer on the Holmes canon, The seven stories included in the sampler are The Horror of the Many Faces by Tim Leben, The Adventure of the Death Fetch by Daryl Schweitzer The Adventure of the Lost World by Dominic Green Dynamics of a Hanging by Tony Pye, Miradue of Abominable Memory by Chris Roberson The Adventure of the Green Skull by Mark Valentine and You See But You Do Not Observe by Robert J. Sawyer The most famous quote from Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes is When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Or something close to that. The first two stories, The Horror of the Many Faces and The Adventure of the Death Fetch, show two views of how Holmes might react when confronted with a case where the correct solution is, in fact, impossible. The Horror of the Many Faces starts with this compelling image as Dr. Watson runs into Holmes. As I turned a corner into a narrow cobbled street, I saw my old friend my mentor slaughtering a man in the gutter he hacked and slashed with a blade that caught the red twilight and upon seeing me seemed to calm and perform some meticulous mutilation upon the twitching corpse while this is soon revealed as a creature in the style of lovecraft the true home seems to quickly incorporate this new revelation into his larger rational worldview But in the adventure of the death fetch holmes faces a case he is unable to solve in which the only possible solution seems to lie in the realm of the fantastic namely that the victim is being pursued by his death fetch double to kill him and this shakes holmes to his very core the irrational has no place in detective work he says in the story we must confine ourselves to the tangible and physical carefully building upon meticulous reason whereas the whole edifice of my life's work crumbles into dust. Against the supernatural, I am helpless, my methods of no use. The two stories work off each other effectively in Counterpoint, a good sign that John Joseph Adams is an anthology editor to trust. The Adventure of the Lost World is a welcome break from this dark mood established in the first two stories. It's a playful crossing over and mixing with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's other most notable work, The Dinosaur Rob, The Lost World. While the main plot is involved with pursuing a bit of cryptozoology that's been killing trombonists, of all things, the real joy of this piece is in the playful riffs on Sherlock Holmes' tropes. My personal favorites are the unnecessary and outlandish disguises that Holmes dons, including one that requires Holmes to be missing a leg. Ah, Watson, you have been making the assumption all the time that I had two legs to begin with, Holmes says. Here's another of my personal favorites. "'I bought a paper from a decrepit scion of the lower classes "'and sat down on a bench to wait for my tardy associate. "'Watson,' hissed a voice through the gloom. "'Egad,' I replied. "'Where are you, Holmes?' "'I have just sold you a copy of the London Evening Standard. "'Latest news, Governor.' "'Though I had thought you might have remarked on my trombone.' "'I remarked on his trombone. "'Good Lord, Holmes, you have a trombone. "'Are you mad?' It's good, simple, fun. The Dynamics of a Hanging has the unique concept of being set in Holmes' world, but removing Holmes as its protagonist, this being after Holmes goes over the falls with Moriarty, but before his return. Rather, Dr. Watson as the narrator gives center stage to Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, a.k.a. Lewis Carroll, and author of Adventures in Wonderland. Dodgson deftly provides the key to decoding Moriarty's secret notebook— while also solving a murder staged to look like a suicide of a young prodigy named Arthur Doyle, of all things. Meridue of Abominable Memory and The Adventure of the Green Skull are well-written mysteries that feel like they could be lost original works by Doyle. The first of these involves a man with a photographic memory, which is put to nefarious purpose. It's a bit bloodier than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's original works, but still in the same vein. The second is a mystery of several dead men who appear to have died accidentally, but were reportedly pursued by a green-skulled phantom just before their death. More mysteriously, a matchstick was pressed between their fingers after their demise. The final selection is, in my opinion, the best offering of the lot. You See, But You Do Not Observe, by Robert J. Sawyer, most noted for Flash Forward. In the work, Holmes and Watson are pulled forward in time to the end of the 21st century, to solve the so-called Fermi Paradox. Namely, why haven't we found any evidence of extraterrestrial life, given the apparently high probability that it's out there? In other words, where is everybody? The answer given by Sawyer is an intriguing and innovative one, and the solution is, well, both touching and heartbreaking. Read this one, even if you don't touch any of the others. If you enjoy the selections, I'm sure Bay and Books and John Joseph Adams would be glad to sell you a copy of the full anthology. It looks like an ebook edition will set you back about $6 American. Well, that's all for this edition of the Cheapskate Review. The music is by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons Attribution Non Commercial License. And this is Adam, reminding you that free
1: doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go! Adam, look for more. Squire, that's very nice. Thank you so much. So that is show 226. I hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if you enjoyed it. You know, drop us an email. I always like to have emails. I'm lonely here. Here by myself. Well, actually, see, I went by myself. Is not often I can get by myself to get this recorded now. Oh, she just drives. Kids. Driving is mad. Two Doorman dogs, two kids, Crazy wife. Actually, mind you, they all say the same about me. Dad, man, dad. So anyway, I'd love to see you at the Star Wars musical extravaganza. Do you know what I mean? Uh, my little son, Reed, or little son, he's actually the tallest in his class there now. How cool is that? I <laughs> you father, Six foot two and eyes are blue. We went to see the Star Wars in 3D. Just last week there. And it's actually lovely that, you know, because we're going to go again, you know, and see see that I guess they're all coming out in this kind of 3D. Not that I'm bothered about the 3D, to be quite honest. It's just the fact, you know, I was there the first day, the first three films, I was in the queue in the Newcastle, for the Newcastle Odeon, to see them films when they first came out, and it's lovely just being able to go with read as well, you know. And it's funny when my wife came as well, my daughter didn't want to come out, I, I just want to go and see One Direction because oh, got that to come as well, you know. We've got the oh, gosh, I shouldn't waffle on here, but I'll tell you a little bit. My daughter's just obsessed with One Direction, and i stooped the lowest low and I put a one die, a Harry. One Direction, one of the members of the One Direction, poster on our bedroom wall, for on a ceiling for her. And now we've got this almighty job at the weekend, I think. Tickets go on sale for their concert. She was a nightmare, do you know what I mean? Old punk rocker and having the daughter who's kind of right into that just doesn't sit well. But anyway, we went to see Star Wars and... The wife, this was the first one, do you know what I mean? Not The New Hope, this is, you know, the little Anakin one, I forget what it's called there now. And just didn't like it whatsoever, you know. and Yes, yeah, God, it's, its false, but it's still Star Wars and you can still kind of, you know, when you go with your son, you still come out feeling great, so. But the wife just did not like it one bit. I don't know if she'll maybe stick around for the other But anyways, so please, yes, If I'd love to see you at the Star Wars, you know, the music extravaganza. That would be fantastic. If you fancy donating to Starship over again, that would be fantastic. There's all the links on the front of the website. Join up for um, the little, you know, donations, monthly donations as well. Oh, and just before I go, don't forget, Tales to Terrify. That would be fantastic if you could um, pop over and see Larry (laughs) in his little nook. Actually, the download figures are going fantastic for Tales to Terrify as well. And there was a great comment on Twitter, which I'm going to try and get Josh to put on the front of the Tales to Terrify website. Jason Sanford, who actually narrated the story that we played on Tales to Terrify this week, or it might have been last week, says, Tales to Terrify host Larry Santoro also has the perfect voice for horror. He's the Vincent Price of podcasts. Come on, man. You've got to go over there and check out Tales to Terrify. Larry's just fantastic. I'm so pleased he kind of came on board. Until next week, just like to say, goodnight from me. Will our heroes
2: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for air Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.